We are assembled here today to pay final respects to our honored dead. And yet it should be noted that in the midst of our sorrow, this death takes place in the shadow of new life, the sunrise of a new world, a world's life to protect and nourish. He did not feel this sacrifice a vain or empty one. And we will not debate his profound wisdom at these proceedings. Of my friend, I can only say this. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human. Others? Good morning, everyone. And no, you're not tuned into the wrong channel. Welcome to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, Sunday morning, January 13th, 2024. Tonight is going to be a very special show, a show, because even now, as I'm talking to you over landlines and satellites and terrestrial radio and an entire wired network around the world to the hundreds of countries that we're in. Out in space, beyond the moon, there is a spacecraft called Centaur, actually an upper stage. And in that stage, there are 240 souls, if one can imagine, in the form of DNA and the cremated ashes of the remains of 240 once living people on planet Earth who are heading into an eternal orbit of the solar system, of the sun. And among those people are a sterling cast of characters that we have known and loved so well for so many years and decades. Most of the bridge crew of the USS Enterprise, Nichelle Nichols, Uhuru, um, uh, DeForest Kelly, Bones, James Doohan, Scotty, are en route tonight, forever away from Earth, on their final Enterprise mission. And I say that with all due respect because, as you'll see when we get into, into our news items uh, uh, in a couple of minutes, Space.com over a year ago called this this uh, extraordinary adventure, a combination of collaboration between NASA and a firm called Astrobiotic, or Astrobotic, I'm sorry, and the United Launch Alliance, which is a fusion of two major aerospace companies, Lockheed Martin and the Boeing Corporation, who launched this mission on Monday morning, in the wee hours of Monday morning, just uh, kind of toward the end of our, our Sunday night, Monday morning show, on a first-time rocket put together by Boeing and Lockheed, a rocket called Vulcan. A Vulcan rocket launching the final Enterprise mission of most of the bridge crew of the USS Enterprise. While simultaneously, on the spacecraft that that rocket launched into space and headed toward the moon in the wee hours of that Monday morning, there are other 
major figures in the panoply of Star Trek, uh, you know, first-rate characters. For instance, the great bird of the galaxy himself, Gene Roddenberry. His ashes are being carried by the Peregrine Lander, which was initially intended to land on the moon on February 23rd and is not going to be able to make it now. And we'll go through the details of all that in the uh, next three hours. In addition, the ashes of his wife, Majel, Nurse Chapel, Majel Barrett, uh, Majel Roddenberry, when they finally got married, uh, she is accompanying him on this final mission. This one intended originally for the lunar surface, and in fact now it may be uh, intended for someplace far beyond. And last but not least, and we'll go through some of the other notables that we now have identified that are on this uh, combined mission, uh, my dear friend Arthur C. Clarke. Um, a special envoy was sent, it turns out, by the Celestis uh, Company, which is the firm in Houston, Texas, which has been carrying out since 1994 these space memorials. And on uh, their particular assignment, they went to Sri Lanka specifically to find the DNA of Arthur, and they found some, brought it back, prepared it for insertion into one of these little special capsules. And he and Jean and Majel and several others were destined initially in the plan to spend the rest of the lifetime of the solar system sitting on the moon atop a four-legged lander called Peregrine. And why is that important? Because Peregrine is another name for a special species of falcon, a blue falcon. And of course, in the Egyptian mythos and traditions, the falcon, the Peregrine, is Horus, the god of the rising sun and resurrection. We're going to spend the next three hours kind of doing a forensic analysis of the intent of this combined Horus and Enterprise mission, what has turned out differently, what some of the potential hidden agendas behind this mission, which has been like 16 years, it turns out, in the planning, and where it's all going to come down, all the rest of us, in the form of a revelation. Uh, with us tonight um, are some of our very, very well-known um, crew members here at the Enterprise Mission. Uh, Georgia Lambert is with us. She's our resident metaphysician. Andrew Curry is with us. He is a uh, Hollywood artist, works on feature films, works on commercials, has worked on uh, Super Bowl extravaganzas. We've got Holger Eisenberg, who's with us, who is uh, a expert in um, uh, image processing. Uh, he lives in Silicon Valley. He has a wide range of engineering interests in the space program and has been doing yeoman service in trying to interpret the periodic uh, uh, press releases that Astrobotic has been issuing following Monday morning's launch. And then a few hours later, the discovery that something had gone radically wrong with the propulsion system of the uh, Peregrine spacecraft and that it would not be able to land on the moon after all. And initially, the assessment was there was a unplanned leak in the fuel system. They pinned it down to potentially a leak in the uh, oxidizer tank. And of course, because you're in space and there's no atmosphere, if you're going to get a rocket to ignite, you've got to have a fuel and you have to have oxygen from which the fuel is burned. Well, there apparently is a leak that was somehow triggered by the separation of the spacecraft from the upper stage Centaur, which occurred uh, 
about a half hour after the second burn of the Centaur rocket, leaving Earth and heading the Peregrine spacecraft in this double looping trajectory around the moon. And as we speak tonight, the spacecraft is literally turning around like a stone thrown into the air. It did not have what we call escape velocity, meaning the Centaur rocket deliberately did not fire it on a trajectory whereby if it didn't reach the moon, it would uh, go on forever into an orbit, a so-called heliocentric orbit. But instead, and we were discussing this before airtime, its intended trajectory was a loop around the point in space where the moon will be in another week, and then they fall back around the Earth, another loop up toward the moon, and by that time the moon will have arrived at a rendezvous, and the plan was to place it into a extended lunar orbit, and then over ensuing weeks uh, to lower that orbit in stages. Finally, uh, doing an automatic computer-controlled descent on the 23rd of February, which, by the way, is one night before a magician named David Copperfield has advertised widely that he is going to make the entire moon disappear. If that were not enough, there are these hidden, swirling memes around the missions themselves. Three separate capsules on these two spacecraft containing, in total, something like 300 or maybe 300 uh, DNA samples and or ashes of both the deceased and the living on their one-way journey into space, or as the original plan intended, for a soft landing and then eternal rest upon the moon. Well, one half of that mission is in the Peregrine spacecraft, this unmanned robot, which is about the size of a you know, large washing machine with four landing legs and lots of mylar and carrying 20 um, payloads, five experiments from NASA and uh, 15 separate payloads of uh, various types from memorializations, artwork, to actual engraved signatures uh, on little nickel sheets, which will last in the vacuum forever, on which are inscribed names and messages from participants from all over the world. Something like, last number I saw was 85,000 people had signed up. So our mutual friend, Nova Spivak, who developed this technology and has been on this program several times, could leave messages and their memorialization on the moon along with the ashes and the DNA. Well, um, I'll tell you what, before we get into all of that, because it's a very tangled and frankly rather confusing picture tonight, we do not know whether there's enough fuel in the peregrine tanks and the engine so that they can literally at the uh, high point, the apogee, again tonight at the lunar distance, whether they can turn on the engines and conduct what is called a TCM, a trans-coast maneuver. Because what they have to do, if the spacecraft is not going to, uh, in five days, come back to Earth, smash into the Earth's atmosphere, and bury itself under the Pacific somewhere northeast of Australia, they need to somehow turn those engines on, burn for a few minutes, maybe even less, and raise the perigee, the whip-around distance when the spacecraft falls back that quarter million miles to Earth um, by January 19th, which will be Tuesday. And if they don't manage to light those engines and burn for a few minutes, the trajectory currently assessed by NASA's Deep Space Tracking Network is that the spacecraft will enter the atmosphere uh, northwest of Australia and all the payloads will burn up in a brilliant artificial meteor, including genes 
and Majel's remains and Arthur's DNA, which, by the way, was extracted from a hair sample that they brought back the United States uh, to Celestis there in Houston from his home in Sri Lanka. They sent someone all the way to Sri Lanka to make sure that Arthur was on this enterprise mission. So I'm kind of betting that between the more optimistic prognostications of the onboard pressurization and fuel and the unwillingness for the mission planners and those engineers who are working the consoles 24-7 now, that they are willing to allow this mission to die an ignominious fate. But I think that if they have any technological means available, meaning simply pressurization in those tanks and enough fuel to do the burn, they can raise the perigee so that the spacecraft does not intersect the Earth or enter the atmosphere, but instead whips around, heading back toward the moon and then into interplanetary space to forever circle the sun with the onboard memorial of Jean and Majel and Arthur and about 65 other people. So... That's our tableau for tonight. That's our discussion in terms of its meaning because there are so many layered mythological and historical meanings far beyond the encapsulation I have just presented that it's going to take us about three hours to go through all of the different things that are occurring simultaneously on this specific mission. Because as you're going to hear, some of our panelists tonight, some of our crew members, like Andrew and I, firmly believe that this mission, in fact, has a dual or even a quadruple meaning, which includes, by the way, the rather remarkable objections by the Navajo people at the last minute to the concept of landing human remains all. We'll get into all of that, but first, let me do a quick summary of some news. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the other side of midnight banner, which says very brightly and spectacularly, uh, which was specifically written for tonight's show, the enterprise around NASA's secret Horus mission to the moon. And you click on that, that will take you to the guest page. And under the guest page for this Saturday night, January 13th, you will see fast links to items. Click on my name. That will take you to the section of the page we call Radio with Pictures. Item number one. The reason all this is important is that something has to change in the current human condition. Otherwise, the prognostication for the human race tonight is not very optimistic. What do I mean by that? Well, the war in the Mideast between Israel and Hamas, and really Israel and Iran, has been widened in the last two days because the U.S. military and 14 other nations did a combined aerial strike bombarding something like 60 separate targets in the northwestern part of Yemen, attacking the Houthi rebels, who are a split-off faction of uh, uh, Shia, I believe, and they have been at war with the government of Yemen for, for several years now, and they are taking the side of Hamas in the war between Hamas in Gaza and Israel, and in so doing, they have been attacking an innocent set of third parties, which is the economic transport of global supplies through the Red Sea and ultimately the Suez Canal. In the last week alone, something like 27 attacks on neutral shipping that have nothing to do with Israel or Hamas or the United States or anybody else, basically part of the global supply chain which keeps civilization all over this planet alive and well, has been a Houthi rebels. And so two days ago, the uh, United States, in concert with these 14 other nations, launched a combined attack on military bases, radars, missile, missile sites, cruise missile sites, all the paraphernalia 
the rebels have been using to attack, again, completely innocent civilian cargo ships and oil tankers, folks totally uninvolved in the nightmare going on in the Middle East. In other words, the Houthi rebels have been holding international shipping hostage in an effort to pressure Israel to basically cease attacking Hamas. A tangled web indeed. The problem is, given the tinderbox that is the Middle East with other Iranian uh, surrogates like Hezbollah in Lebanon, all it will take is one mistimed match and that entire region could go up in flames. And in that process, given the fact that there are participants on all sides who have nuclear weapons and some advisors to the Israeli government, some ministers of Prime Minister Netanyahu have actually openly advocated using nuclear weapons to clear the Gaza terrain, to level it like a parking lot. Such insane over-the-top remarks are what can inadvertently trigger not just a local conflagration, but something which could quickly, inevitably escalate into something that none of us tonight would even dare to contemplate. So what is the alternative? I believe, and I believe most of the participants on this panel believe, that the only change that can be happening on Earth is if human beings are suddenly confronted face-to-face with a much larger, much deeper, much more profound and meaningful reality than the stupid things going on tonight on planet Earth. That means reconnecting in our model with our ancient selves, reconnecting with the fact that on the moon, the place where the Peregrine slash Horus mission was destined to land, it's not a desolate crater strewn and radiation saturated landscape, but in fact, it was once the home of an avidly vibrant and incredibly sophisticated technological civilization in many different stages, ranging from tens of millions of years ago to perhaps as recently as 30,000 years. And as we go through the morning, we will tabulate some of the evidence that we have discussed and laid out on previous shows on the other side of midnight, which document what to some may sound like absolute raving assertions. And I kid you not, they are not just assertions. They are backed up with crisp, pristine, checkable, hard physical evidence, like our discovery and confirmation that in fact there was constructed at a crater on the moon in Oceanus Procellarum, which, by the way, is now the same location that the um, uh, Peregrine spacecraft was intended to land. Not the same site, but the same you know, area within several hundred miles. There is at the Apollo 12 landing site, where NASA sent not just one, but two separate missions twice redundantly to sand in the same location. Surveyor 3, there is tonight sitting on the rim of that stadium-sized, ancient, incredibly eroded crater, which frankly looks like the submerged and damaged foundations of an ancient, ancient structure underneath the regolith, underneath the lunar soil. There is an incredible lunar equivalent of Stonehenge. And we have done all kinds of tests, compared multiple photographs, done computer simulations. Greg Ahrens did incredible service in finding key alignments, which calibrate to the last time this structure was created as part of another potential memorial to souls who have passed on was about 30,000 years ago. 
Now, into this mix, let's move to item number two. We have three major wars going on tonight. The one in Ukraine, the one in Gaza, and the new front opened up with our U.S. strikes on behalf of the 14-nation consortium in uh, uh, Yemen uh, last night and the night before. At that precise moment, as all of this incredibly dangerous and precipitous military activity is going on, the United States Secretary of Defense disappeared at the beginning of last week, two weeks ago, for three whole days. And no one, including the President of the United States, knew where he had gone. We will discuss the real potential reason for this bizarreness, the underlying causes, and how it might in fact be connected to this ongoing celestial drama that we are discussing with great detail tonight. There does appear to be a verifiable connection. Item number three. This is the story, the actual story, uh, on Axios of the United Launch Alliance Vulcan Centaur rocket lifting from the launch pad, pad 41 there at uh, Cape Canaveral on Monday morning at 2.18 a.m. Eastern Time. Number four is a detailed background on this Star Trek Memorial flight on space.com which says in this iteration that they added two more names to its Enterprise mission. Interesting how that name keeps getting around. Number five, one of the mysteries which may factor into this ongoing cascading series of Russian dolls or Chinese puzzle boxes, when you open one, there's another mystery inside, is in item number five. Because the initial Peregrine landing site was something like a thousand miles northeast of where the in eventual intended target of the Peregrine mission on 23rd February was supposed to land. The initial site, a thousand miles northeast, was nowhere near where they were planning to land when they lifted off on Monday morning. But curiously, remarkably, intriguingly, and maybe critically, the place where they were going to land the Peregrine mission with Jean's remains and Majel's and a moon north of Mare Serenitatis, a place called Lacus Mortis, or the Lake of the Dead. We will discuss more when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. 
Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night on uh, January 13th, 2024. Well, 2024 has gotten off to a bang, but not exactly the kind of bang that I expected from this really remarkable mission. And what I'd like to do now is to start with our uh, colleague and friend and confidant and uh, valued member of the Enterprise crew here at the Enterprise mission, Georgia Lambert, because as God would have it, when you need something, it seems to be available. And to analyze a hidden NASA mission called Peregrine, which basically means a falcon, a specific breed of falcon, we have none other than Georgia Lambert's expertise to talk about falconry because one of her many talents and hobbies and professions in addition to being a metaphysician and an exquisite artist she's also a falconer so without further ado georgia join the party <laughs> good evening good evening yes, another, another weird slice of my life here good <laughs> well, with all the, the math and the space science that's going to unfold tonight, uh, we can start with uh, a, um, a National Geographic moment here. And I have three points to make about why the name Peregrine might be symbolic and ritualistic and relevant. Ah. The first uh, point must be understood by understanding the sight of a falcon. You know, falcons are raptors. When you say sight, you, you mean their vision? Yeah, okay. yeah, their okay. vision. Uh, the, the Falcons, of course, are, are raptors, birds of prey, along with hawks. Eagles are, are in the hawk category. Vultures and owls. It's interesting that all raptors have eyes that are in some ways similar to ours in that there's a colored iris with a black pupil that contracts and expands according to light. If you look at pictures of hawks or eagles or owls, you'll see a yellow or orange iris uh, with a black pupil. Falcons are different. Falcons' eyes are all black, like a gray alien's. Oh, my. And yeah, they have a completely different look. I mean, if you think the look of uh, an eagle is intense, ratchet it up when you look at a falcon. A falcon's sight is so good that they could, if they could read a book, they would be able to read it a mile and a half away. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, and hang on, hang on. Uh, what's, what's the shape of the eye? Because I know some birds of prey have, like, cat-like eyes where the iris is vertical. What What's the shape no, of, the, of the falcon eye? No, the, the, the iris isn't, uh, the, the pupil isn't vertical. Uh, it may look that way, but it really isn't. It's round like ours. Okay. And again, in all birds of prey, it's a colored iris, yellow or orange. Uh, but the falcon has only black. It's solid black, again, like a gray alien, you know, those kinds of drawings that we've all seen. It's solid. 
also, they can see up close and far away simultaneously. Now, we can't even imagine that because our brains aren't wired that way. This is why in falconry, when you are carrying a falcon uh, for, let's say, hunting at medieval, uh, you know, events or things like that, um, the falcon is hooded because their sight is so intense that if they're around a lot of people or commotion, it overstimulates the nervous system and they can have a heart attack. So the hood goes on the falcon. Uh, it doesn't touch the eye. It's off the face, but it cuts out the light. They think it's night. They go, it, they go right to sleep and their heart rate goes right down. Hmm. So uh, their sight is absolutely amazing. Now, of course, they were the god symbol of Horus. And Horus, of course, was the god of healing, but also of protection from evil and the god of the sun and the sky. So the first thing is understanding what a falcon's sight is, and I'll give you the relevance there in a second. The second thing is the hunting style. Their hunting style is completely different than all other birds of prey. If you look at a hawk or an eagle, first of all, they're lazy. If they can get roadkill, <laughs> they're very happy to get roadkill. But if not, um, they'll find a, a tall telephone pole or a tree or something high to perch in. Or they'll lazily, you know, waft on the, the draft currents that are high in the atmosphere. If you see a bird of prey circling, it's going to be a hawk or an eagle. It's not going to be a falcon. You won't even see a falcon. So one way you can tell the difference is that when they're flying, uh, a hawk or an eagle, if you look at the end of their wings, the feathers splay out like fingers, whereas a thing is a point like a jet plane. In fact, the swept wing pl uh, wings of jets were taken from a falcon's wing. They come to a very, very sharp point. So with a hawk, they'll perch or they'll glide looking for something on the ground like a lizard or a snake or a rabbit if they can get it. And they'll swoop down and grab it with their talons and squeeze it to death and start feeding sometimes before their prey is actually dead. So that's the hunting style hmm. of a hawk or an eagle. The falcon only hunts other birds from the air. It does not go for ground prey. And what it'll do, it'll go so high that you can't see it. And it'll look down waiting for a bird to fly under it, like a duck or a pigeon. Or in medieval times, they actually hunted swans with falcons. Oh, my. The falcon will, will wait until it sees something flying beneath it. And then it'll tuck its wings and drop on it at two yes. Exactly. And what it does is it puts its talons out and it punches the prey. So it shocks it. Completely knocks it out. It, it often will then sweep around and catch it as it's falling and then take it off to eat it somewhere. My gosh. But it, it won't go flee, you'd pray. You'd have a hole in the ground with a big bunch of feathers. So that doesn't work. <laughs> so they only take other birds from out of the air. Um, and then, of course, the interesting thing about the peregrine, which is one of many different breeds of falcons, the peregrine is uh, native to all continents except Antarctica. And it was for a long time on the extinct list, going extinct. It was very, very endangered. And they brought it back by introducing it into the cities because peregrines nest high up on cliffs. Several years so, ago on the web, there was an office which had a webcam and on the window ledge, like on the 35th floor or something, a peregrine falcon built a nest and raised a family right outside this office window. And it was all over the internet. The, the mother sitting on the eggs and, you know, daddy coming and feeding her. 
and then when the chicks were born they were so cute they would both go and hunt and bring it back and this was all over the world all you had to do was log on to this this website and bingo there in san francisco was a live falcon family being raised yeah and the peregrines have been brought back because they were reintroduced to the cities because there's lots of high skyscrapers <laughs> and plenty of pigeons that's true so my gosh they also have this thing about them where they've been brought back from extinction and so if we're looking at symbols and you know little pieces of ritual we've got their sight which is you know and how their eyes work which is almost alien and almost indescribable they can see so far you know far-sighted animals they only hunt other birds from the air they're not tied to the ground at all in terms of their behavior so they're creatures of the sky creatures of the sky completely and there's this overlay of the dead being brought back to life yeah how does that work in the myth well because they're they were brought back from extinction and of course we've got you know ashes and dna kind of going to eternity yes yes okay why, why did the egyptians focus on the falcon as as horus as this god of the rising sun as this heal how do you get healing out of death out of you know basically well, a bird of prey being being brought back to life is the ultimate healing oh. but the reason they chose falcons is that because of the sight uh, there's a lot of uh, sculpture and painting of uh, of Horus uh, being surrounded by multiple falcons behind the, behind him because the falcon with their sight could see all over the kingdom all at once and could keep an eye on everything all at the same time oh okay and so it so was it's kind of like the all there, there is this thing called the eye of Horus yes exactly well how exactly. did that come about well that that's a whole nother story but it's not geared to the falcon at all it has to do with um uh symbolically in metaphysical tradition your right eye is symbolic of your alignment with your higher self or spirit or soul and your left eye looks outward into the world so sometimes in painting you see a right eye or a left eye and that uh, is relevant um, if people want to uh, take a look at my pic one picture in the show notes you can see the falconry group I'm a part of I was uh, and my best friend were founding members of Falcons Court an educational nonprofit organization and you can see us with our birds and hawks uh, a falcon in the background hooded and a couple of owls wait, 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 wait. Is, is that john glenn that's john glenn yes holy cow astronaut john glenn so that that was really interesting there was a a conference of the aeronautics and astronautics uh in the early 2000s and uh the boeing corporation uh to be a presenter um for the theme that year which was the history of flight so we set up a da vinci skunk works and, uh, <laughs> and had all kinds of da vinci drawings and his drawings of birds and his early flying machines and we did a live a falconry presentation where we flew one of our hawks two inches over the heads of the audience back and forth oh and my. all the air force boys were just amazed oh my and Buzz Aldrin and his wife were there, and Mrs. Aldrin loved petting our Eurasian eagle owl. So what kind of, 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 of falcon, falcons, or birds of prey, I should widen it out, are in that picture? Which, if you click on it, it gets full screen. Uh, going from the left to the right, uh, we see a Harris hawk. Uh, then there's me. Wait, 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 wait. Describe what the, each one is, because, you know, they're all different. 
Yeah, is uh, a bird of prey that is indigenous to South America and the southwest of the United States. They're the only raptor that hunts in packs and lives in packs like wolves. What? And they, co- they coordinate their hunting. They share their mates, they share their food, they share everything. Uh, so they're, they're very, so they're so they're like Air Force squadrons. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God! And they've been known to stack each other up on each other's back in order to get a higher view of the landscape if it's too flat. What do you mean? Well, one will climb on top of the other one. Will climb on top of the other one. You mean like circus and, acrobats? Yeah. Oh my God! So you can have what a stack of five Harris hawks. <laughs> Well, five is a little more much, but three certainly. Holy um, cow! And and they're very popular with falcon falconers because they, since they're social, um, they bond with their falconer much easier than than most other birds of prey. So that's the Harris hawk. It, it's really funny. I've seen uh, video of. Uh, uh, falconry presentations in France and Italy that are supposed to be so authentic, and they're using American Harris hawks because they're easy to work with. <laughs> um, but uh, so that's the the first one is the Harris hawk. Then I'm holding, I'm standing there next to uh, John Glenn, and I'm holding an English buzzard, which is not a vulture. It's the English equivalent to our red tail hawk. Um, oh. And then. It's hard to see, but standing behind uh, John Glenn is our falcon, and uh, he's hooded uh, because, you know, their sight is such that they need to be hooded to keep them safe and, and calm. And then we have two. Next one is a great horned owl from the United States, and the far one is a Eurasian eagle owl which is quite a bit larger than the great horned owl. The one on the far right, just at the edge of the frame. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He looked, what was his name? Socrates. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the whole UFO hidden mystery thing about the aviary and birds playing some role in the secret, you know, government involved with UFOs and all that. And you know they call the two camps, the one camp that wants to keep everything secret forever, and then the other camp that wants to make it publicly known, like what's going on now. The secret keepers are the owls. Right. And the guys that want to make it public are called the roosters. Right. Roosters and owls. So there's this avian mythology behind all of this. There's there's another little twist to that. Uh, rooster and owl thing. Um, the rooster is one of the Western symbols for the Ajnus chakra, which is the one in front of the forehead. And if you look in an Did anatomy you, you mean, book, you mean the so-called third eye? It's called that. It really isn't, but it's called that. Yeah, the, the rooster is one of the symbols for that. And the reason is, if you look at the bones in the skull, the bones of the face right there in that area are two sphenoid bones that look like wings and right in front of those wings is a little cup of uh, a little piece of bone called the cristigali which means coxcomb so there is in a sense uh, a rooster uh, in that particular area of the forehead so wait if we have an opposition between cover-up and awakening and openness then basically the rooster is an occult symbol for awakening. Yeah, exactly. Wow. The owl keeps you asleep at night. And by the way, the the owl that is usually associated with Athena and Minerva as the goddess of wisdom, so owls, you know, are usually shown as really smart birds. They're really not. They're really stupid. Compared to all other raptors, owls are really very basic, and they can bond with human beings pretty well, which is why them, which you don't want to try doing that with a hawk, you know. Hmm. The the way they used the way they used um, owls in the Middle Ages for hunting is that they would uh, take their hunting party out into the woods, they'd find a, a clearing, and then stake the owl in the middle of the clearing. 
and wait for crows and ravens and magpies that hate owls to come. There's an owl here. And when the sky was filled with uh, black birds, then they'd send up the falcons. My, my. Now, why did falconry as a, I didn't want to use the term sport, you know, the sport of kings or something. Yeah. How did it get off? This is, oh, I hate myself. How did it get off the ground? <laughs> <laughs> well, it started in China thousands of years ago, and it spread westward. In, in fact, there, there have been some wonderful films showing uh, Mongolian falconers working with eagles to hunt. Pretty impressive, working with eagles uh, as, as a hunting partner. Well, and then it spread well wait, don't they absolutely kill the guy holding them on his arm? Um, they're heavy. It, 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 they they are heavy. We we had uh, years back. We had uh, an eagle named Kenya, and uh, uh, it misstepped and uh, put its talon right through my friend's palm of the hand, and oh. it took three three grown men to pull that talon oh out my of my friend's gosh. hand. Yeah, so it's it's not. So he was not lightly. wearing a, a gauntlet. Well, he was, of course he was wearing a gauntlet. Really? It went through the leather of the gauntlet? It went through his other hand. He was adjusting the jesses at the, at the, uh, the jesses are the little pieces of leather that are like little strings that are attached to the, the bird's uh, uh, talons. And he was adjusting those and uh, the eagle just reached out and just grabbed him and there you go. So he didn't just but, uh, readjust his stance. He literally went for your friend's hand. Yeah, kind of. It nice was it was guy. an accident. It, it's just, you know, they're, they're wild animals. Mm -hmm. And they always, you know, in falconry, they always have the option, and sometimes they do, which is heartbreaking if you've put in years of training a bird and then they decide to fly off. But that's their choice. How often does that happen? Uh, it, it happens a, a good a good amount of t uh, of the time. Really, uh, it's, it's like okay, enough of this human stuff. I'm going back to my life. Bye. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that happens, especially with caught birds. Now, birds that have been bred um, for uh, a falconer from day one, the incident isn't as is you know is high, obviously. Okay. But of course, as falconry moved from China. Uh, westward, it moved into medieval Europe, and there uh, arose a whole science of what class could own what bird, just like they had sumptuary laws where you could only wear certain colors if you were a certain rank. Uh, you could only have uh, uh, falcons uh, or hawks if you were uh, a certain grade of noble. And the jeer falcon, which is the pure white ones, uh, they were only owned by kings. So here's a dumb question. <clears throat> Why did the field become known as falconry as opposed to eaglery or hawkery or owlery? <laughs> um, because falcons were the most, uh, they were the classiest. Really? They, that was what, yeah, that was what royalty, you know, used. If you were lower down on the food chain of nobles, you could have a hawk. And this is even true today in terms of getting falconry licensing. You have to start out with a red tail uh, hawk usually, or a, a kestrel, which is a tiny, tiny little falcon that, you know, is too small to go after big birds, so it, it eats off. Um, but uh, uh, a, a beginner uh, will start out with a red tail, and then as you progress, you can, you, can, you know, pony up to, to having falcons. I'm wondering if that caste system was somehow based on the falcon is the only one that swoops and hunts in the air at the highest level and the others eat carrion and dead rabbits and in other words there's pun intended again a pecking order because yeah. the falconry was was pure it was a thing we're just kind of of the earth with wings. Exactly. Oh. Wow. And, you know, the, the the falcon's hunt was sort of mysterious because it was so high in the sky. You oh, they'd really be like disappear and then suddenly, boom, there they were. And yeah. it was like magic. It was like, you know, 
the 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 prince or the princess or the king who could command that was commanding elemental forces of a mysterious nature there you go golly you know we need to do a whole show on falconry with your friend because this obviously is at the core of the hidden part of NASA I've been talking about for decades and the you know the holy triumvirate Osiris and Isis and Horus and yeah I would like to because this is this is fascinating okay uh, panel including Ron Gerber and I don't know whether I introduced Ron uh, before the last break anybody have any questions of our falconrist is there a falconrist <laughs> tonight <laughs> I think there's a fancy name for it but I'm not sure what it is <laughs> Georgia, what about uh, that's fascinating stuff, Georgia? Oh well, was, like I said, it's just another sort of weird. One of her of weird life. hobbies. <laughs> Do you know that she wields a wicked broadsword? Not a rapier, you know, a broadsword. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, I had one comment on this before it goes away, and I, um, then I'll go away for the moment. The uh, Georgia, did you know there are uh, some largely unexplored ruins in Iran, of all places, current-day Iran, uh, that are shaped like falcons? Oh, really? Yeah, the whole, I it's did like not a know plat- that. It's like a platform, like uh, Zechariah Sitchin was so... Uh, but it's uh, it's shaped like a falcon. And, you know, obviously all the temple stuff would be built on top of it, and it's long Sure. Long. Yeah. Anyway, I just... I- did not know that. That's that's yeah. really fascinating. It is because it precedes the uh, origin of the Horus stories in Egypt. We don't know exactly by how much, but it's at least as old, and there's no Horus legends in uh, Persia. That's yeah, well... Well, again, if falconry, you know, started in China and came west, it would have uh, influenced those other civilizations too, and and you know, each would have its own relationship with the stories and the the lore and stuff. Oh, well, thank you, <laughs> Andrew. I think you had a question. You're right. Yeah. Thank you, Georgia, and thank you, Richard. Um, Georgia, what about the feathers? Like, I know in in like. Ah. Um, yeah. Please go with that. Yeah. Which. What thing specifically did you want to know? Well, I know in, in First Nations cultures, you know, like eagle feathers, for instance, are highly prized and they're adorned and, you know, like, you know, certain headdresses and stuff. Is, do we see the same kind of thing with falcons or are they just too small? No, you, you see the same kind of thing. Uh, the thing is that uh, it's important to let everybody know it is highly uh, illegal to own a bird of prey feather. Oh, interesting. Unless you have a falconry license, you can't even own the feathers. They are so protected. There was uh, an incident some years back of um, uh, when uh, the Clintons were in the presidency, someone made like a dream catcher and sent it to Hillary, and the FBI showed up on their door because it it was a a hawk feather that she wasn't legally supposed to have. Okay, guys. We are at the top of the hour. My guests this morning, Georgia Lambert, Andrew Curry, Ron Gerbron, and Holger Eisenberg. And we are coming right back. We have so much to get into, but what a splendid foundation to assess NASA's secret enterprise and Horus mission to the moon and beyond. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only 
Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.